Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. It's really a, a great pleasure to be able to be back and uh, delivering AKC lectures in person. And uh, so today we will be launching this series on radical religion with a talk from me about rethinking radicalization. So just to begin, what do we actually mean by radical and how would we recognize a radical act when we see it? I want to start with a, an act from Emily Davison, a very well-known suffragette who was really core to the suffragette movement. And at the 1913 Epsom Derby horse race, she broke free from the crowd and uh, seemed to hurl herself under the horse that was sponsored by the king. She was trampled by the horse, the jockey and the horse fell down, and she eventually died from these injuries. Now, Emily Davison was known for her radicalism before this, this event, and uh, she was well known because she was active in a number of ways, through hunger strikes uh, for the women's rights to vote, and through many acts of civil disobedience. Uh, she would, li write, uh, would light post boxes on fire, for example, and do other acts that demonstrated her very strong belief in women's suffrage. And so she left no notes, and there was no clear reason uh, or exact uh, uh, plan for what she was doing with this act. But as people have done an analysis of the cameras later, they were able to see that probably she was trying to put a banner, a suffragette banner, onto the horse and have the horse run with that banner. Uh, she was a strong Christian, a Christian socialist, and she often wrote in her memoirs about being a martyr. Uh, so it's not evident that she actually wanted to die in this act. In fact, it's very unlikely she did, but she was willing to go to the ends of uh, a very dangerous situation, and eventually, and she in fact did die. Now, I share this with you because it is undoubtedly a radical act, an act that uh, was of great political daring, and actually great political significance. It was unpopular in the immediate aftermath, but actually quite soon precipitated the change in women's right to vote. And so five years later, women were granted the right to vote at age 30, and another 10 years after that, uh, they were able to vote um, on equal grounds with men within the United Kingdom. This series will be about radical religion, about those who are willing to follow their convictions to get to the root of problems within society. And when we think about the term radical, we might think about terms like extreme, uh, terms about getting to the very limits. But actually, it's more apt to think about radical in terms of a radish. Uh, radical actually comes from the same word, the same root word that means root and radius and radish and other words that relate to the root are the same uh, in their origins as radical. 
And so radical means getting to the root, getting to the core, getting to the center of any issue and trying to change things from the inside out. And so visions that, uh, that want society to change wholeheartedly, radical images of Marxism, radical visions of Thatcherism, would be those that really try to get to the root and change society from the ground up, um, inside to out. In this series, we will be looking at and considering a wide range of radical ideas uh, that, that religion can animate or relate to. We will be talking about the black radical tradition, for example, and ways in which uh, civil rights and discussions about blackness and political blackness have been animated by a radical tradition. We'll be talking about uh, radical beliefs being voiced on university campuses, what kinds of safety or dangers are there to speaking ideas that are truly radical. We'll be talking about radical forms of Sikhism or ways in which Sikhism might be radicalized. So there's a wide range of connotations and ways that we will consider getting to the root of problems in society and how religion can be part of that. And today, I will be focusing in on what has become the most well-known connotation of radical in recent years, and that will be radicalization relating to Muslims and terrorism. Uh, so today is a, a sensitive topic, a topic that's closer to various topics that I study, um, and a, a good way to introduce this because it lets us get to the heart of what many of us think of as connotations of what is radical and try to uh, rethink that set of notions and understandings uh, from the beginning right from its center. And then as we go through further weeks, there may be weeks where we talk again about topics that relate to what we talk about today, uh, but there will also be weeks when we talk about quite different topics uh, that bring us into thinking about radical religion. So as we get going with thinking about uh, radicalization, terrorism, and uh, the ways in which these types of political violence relate to our understandings of Muslims, let's get ourselves ready for that, but still continue on a bit of a trail to uh, realize that radical can mean both good things and bad things in the different ways that we use it. Uh, so. When we think about the term radical and when we think about radical religion, we actually have a strong and long history of radical, uh, radical religion within this university and in fact within the academic department of theology and religious studies, which is at the core of the whole history of King's College London. And within that academic department of theology and religious studies, we've had a number, number of important and influential characters over time. One that you will know very well is Desmond Tutu, who just died at the end of last year. And so I'll begin just with a couple of words about him. Uh, Desmond Tutu is somebody that embodies a good idea of what is radical. Somebody who was very much uh, putting himself in personal danger during apartheid in South Africa. And someone who uh, was actually shaped positively by his studies at King's College London from 1962 to 1966, when he studied theology. Shaped positively because, although this was not a place without racism, he found that England was a place where he could act more freely and develop more courage and confidence and develop his theological thinking. And 
Tutu is well known for his theology of Ubuntu, uh, his theology which is a radical kind of relational theology of, the, of human personhood, that all of us relate to each other and can only understand each other fully by relating to people who are different from us. And so by preaching and practicing this idea of reaching across human relations, uh, he was able to have much more faith in the possibility of South Africa rebuilding itself and coming out through apartheid to the other side. And he, of course, led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a, a true exemplar of restorative justice, a kind of justice uh, which meant not retribution for crimes in the past, but a kind of healing across society for crimes done in the past. So he's a strong example of radicalism. And another one is F.D. Morris. Uh, so F.D. Morris, Frederick Denison Morris, um, taught within our Theology and Religious Studies Department and was also very well known for his radicalism in two senses. So he was known as someone who had a quite liberal, although recognizably Anglican kind of theology, and someone who had quite radical leanings in Christian socialism. So his ideas of Christian socialism really influenced many people of the day. Uh, he was quite an inspiring preacher, many people thought. And in fact, he was dismissed from King's College London because he was too radical, uh, probably because of the socialism, but possibly because of the theology. Um, and interestingly, we've, we've embraced him now and have a, a lecture series and a professorship named after him. Uh, but people who have radical ideas are often too forward thinking or too out of step with their time, but can be recognized later for those ideas. Now, radical also has very negative connotations. And now we will jump right into the center of thinking about those, those connotations and how they relate to uh, Muslims and uh, to political violence. And so if we think about bad radical religion, I think there's no better way that I could exemplify this than uh, the examples of two books uh, which came out in 2007 and 2012, respectively. I moved to London in 2007. Uh, right around the time of the release of this book, The Islamist, uh, from Ed Hussein. And I, in fact, moved to London to study and do my work on my PhD in the same neighborhoods where Ed Hussein had grown up and where he wrote these memoirs. These memoirs are titled The Islamist with the subtitle, Why I Joined Radical Islam in Britain, What I Saw Inside, and Why I Left. And so you can see that full narrative uh, just in that subtitle. And what Ed Hussein explains in this book is his journey from someone who grew up in a council estate in Tower Hamlets into friendships with Muslims and into local mosques, and then eventually into the group Hizbut Tahrir, which is a group that uh, preached the idea of the caliphate, the idea of changing society from the ground up into a, an Islamic state. Now, he writes about that experience and that journey as one which brought him to the edge almost of violence, to the place where he was almost going to or willing to commit acts of violence, and then turned away from that. And he, in fact, founded a think tank about counter-radicalization and became a well-known speaker that is quite associated with the prevent strategy in the UK. 
Along similar lines, Majid Nawaz wrote uh, another narrative called Radical, as you see here, which is his own story of uh, going through the same kinds of neighborhoods and groups and joining his Tahrir. Uh, so much the same kind of story. And he became an influential speaker in Quilliam and also a, a radio personality who may be familiar to you. What both of these books show is this idea of radical as being dangerous and radical as potentially leading to violence, as, as being a gateway. Uh, ideas that are dangerous, ideas that are ambitious, ideas that involve restructuring society are ideas that can involve upheaval and death and dismay. Uh, so they, these are both ideas, uh, books that are about teetering over the edge towards violence and seeing something ugly and then coming back to tell others. And both books have been greatly critiqued and there are many discussions about them. Uh, I want to just show them as examples of the rising tide of thinking about radicalism and radicalization from the mid-2000s onward, when this became a very hot and important term. And in fact, to give a sense of my own, my own journey and, and interest in this, uh, at that time, I was doing that, that research, which eventually became the book, London Youth, Religion, and Politics, research where I focused in on Tower Hamlets as part of what I was studying alongside Brixton, and did a lot of work in understanding how religion was a part of people's political engagement. I was never interested primarily in radicalization or terrorism or violence. In fact, my hope was to write about, uh, about how Muslims should be de-exceptionalized, how in fact uh, we shouldn't be just writing about violence. Uh, but there's no way to escape entirely trying to understand radicalization as part of that. And then an, a next project, which I did with several colleagues, can be seen through this uh, taking part, Muslim participation in contemporary governance. And that was an attempt to understand how Muslims get involved within government uh, and how uh, there's a kind of governing of how Muslims are uh, engaged in the UK. And so through that project, we looked at PREVENT, the counter-extremism strategy, and we looked at equalities legislation and other things as well. Uh, but just to say from that, that was an opportunity to interview uh, people at the top of counterterrorism in the UK and other departments which had some relationship to how Muslims uh, were seen by government. And this was, was really at the high point when radicalization was the term of vogue. And just to say a bit more about what that term has meant and continues to mean today, uh, that's a term which, uh, which has been used in the past and has been used for, for many decades, but really became very popular with a major rise in academic work uh, in the 2000s. And that popularity can be seen as reflecting a shift in how terrorism was understood. And so with September 11th, 2001, this was a major tragedy that was committed by people who were from outside of the country and came into New York and Washington DC by plane and, and Pennsylvania. Um, and this, uh, this act was committed by foreign nationals and was seen as an act of war, uh, at least by the US president at the time, uh, committed by, by foreign nationals. 
But then over time, uh, new or different types of terror attacks took place. And so in 2004, there were attacks on a train in Madrid, and there were attacks in 2005 in London, uh, which targeted a bus that is seen here and parts of the tube network. So transport networks were targeted. Uh, and what was really distinctive about these attacks in 2004 and 2005 is that they were, uh, quote, homegrown. They were committed by individuals who had grown up within the countries that they attacked. And something seems to have turned within them and led them to take that path towards violence. And there was much soul searching within Britain at that time because the ringleader of the uh, London 2005 attacks uh, was seen as a really good citizen, seen as a normal neighbor, uh, somebody who liked cricket, somebody who had potential in his life, uh, but somehow turned against his own society and committed this violence. So these narratives of homegrown terror were then added to by narratives of lone wolf attacks. And so uh, some of the more recent attacks that uh, have featured in the analysis of terrorism have been attacks uh, committed by individuals who may have looked at material online and through their own decision uh, gone through with an act of violence. That makes them different than Madrid and London where the individuals actually worked with a terror organization. So we're talking about Al-Qaeda or similar organizations and were trained and able to get the, their um, acts together for, for, these, uh, for, for committing these crimes. So lone wolf attacks uh, have been seen as, as, a, as a newer trend, but both homegrown terror and lone wolf attacks involve trying to understand the psychology or understand something on the inside which seems to turn in people and leads them to do these things. And that is the motivation for having a study of radicalization. What is it that happens to people that leads them to want to commit violence against their own societies? So radicalization can be understood as a psychological, theological, or group process by which an individual takes on violent means. Uh, one of my colleagues here at King's College London, uh, Peter Neumann, uh, who runs an institute for, uh, or a center for studying radicalization, um, has had once said that this is what goes on before the bomb goes off. And what this means is that, uh, and he, was, he said this somewhat in passing or some, somewhat uh, with a bit of lightness in the way he said this, but, but essentially uh, radicalization came to the fore because we couldn't understand when bombs went off, what had happened beforehand? What was it that actually uh, led to these, these events to happen? So it's somewhat ad hoc. It was a way of studying things which we didn't understand. We're trying to piece together uh, what led to a violent attack. Now, there are some problems with this uh, kind of approach. And um, I'm going to bring across uh, just a few different critiques people can have of this. One of them is that uh, this is an approach that is filling a policy vacuum, uh, that there really isn't much to say theoretically or empirically. There's just a need to say something about radicalization. There's a need to say something about the violence. And so generally, the study of radicalization has been rather thin in terms of how much theory or depth we've, we have to understanding what's happening. There's a bit of a black box. Uh, 
Some other, uh, some other critiques that are brought across about radicalization are that it's anecdotal, that, that we have very few case studies to look at. There, there's a small number of people who actually commit terrorist attacks of the kinds that we're trying to talk about now. And that means that they have quite idiosyncratic and different stories. And if we look at those stories, it can be quite hard to group them together. Uh, studies do not find a kind of similar social class origin or many of the other factors that one would expect. It's quite hard to correlate and find something with a small set of data like this. Uh, most attacks are committed by men, and there are a few other big, uh, big relationships we may be able to find, but generally we have anecdotal evidence only. Another critique is that radicalization is stigmatizing, that the more that we write about and talk about uh, radicalization and talk about it as a problem which affects Muslims in particular, the more that that group is singled out as pariahs within society, the more that that group is seen as something like a fifth column that is trying to harm its societies. And then uh, fourth and finally out of these critiques, radicalization can be a kind of license to spy. Uh, so radicalization programs are well known for uh, being careful ways to control and understand what's happening and maybe ways of carrying out surveillance. Uh, a very well-known and notorious example of this was the New York Police Department and the way in which they broke into various uh, campus Islamic societies in the, in the um, east coast of the United States, uh, acting as members of these societies but actually trying to do surveillance at the same time. Uh, but many people have critiqued Prevent in its different forms over the years as having elements of surveillance as well. So radicalization is uh, understandably a hot topic. It comes at the same time with various critiques, various different problems. Let's look for a few minutes at some of the some some theories or key theories of radicalization to understand a bit more how it tries to answer uh, these issues or solve these problems. So a few a few theories of radicalization, and I'm just going to give you a few as a, as a quick review. One uh, is this idea of a cultural psychological predisposition. So Walter Lacour, uh, who was a policy operative, very active in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, brought forward this idea and this was very influential in the earlier days, 2004, as this became a bigger policy area. And this essentially means that there are many people out there who, uh, who analysts might think might be capable or interested in committing an act of terror. What is it that, me that means that some people would do it? Uh, Walter LeCour thought that it was something about their psychology that, that marked them out. So either a kind of repressed sexuality, a certain kind of aggressiveness, or some other predisposition meant that some people were more likely than others. Uh, so a relatively simplified or simplistic way of analyzing things. Uh, but this kind of understanding is something you might see in narratives, in, uh, in stories that you might read about these sorts of attacks. So you might get a sense that uh, certain people are seen as being repressed or aggressive, and that might be what's underlying this. A second kind of theory or approach that is quite frequently 
behind the ways that people understand radicalization is the idea of conveyor belt theory. Um, it's not usually spoken of in this way, but generally many of the different approaches of radicalization that are out there have this sense that there's something like a conveyor belt that somebody steps onto as they begin to t have certain beliefs. And so uh, maybe they believe in a certain type of Islam for the first time, maybe Salafism, for example. And as they step into that kind of Islam, that gets them onto a slow-moving conveyor belt where maybe it gets them to do more religious practice. Maybe that gets them to engage with more of certain people. They listen to certain types of preachers. And as they continue on the conveyor belt, that could eventually lead them to an act of violence. So certain types of, uh, of Islam or certain types of religion can be seen as openings or the start of a conveyor belt that can lead others almost inevitably to the place that they might be willing to commit violence. Another wording of this uh, used by Ed Hussein is the idea of mood music. So he said that certain mosques in Tower Hamlets have the mood music by which terrorists dance. Uh, so this idea, um, that was his phrasing, was that it's not necessarily the case that everybody wants to commit terrorism, but the sort of the mood that's set there is uh, one in which it becomes uh, more possible. Then a next theory is the theory called uh, informally bunch of guys theory, uh, which I have a lot of time for. I think this is actually quite an interesting theory. And the idea here is that, uh, that terrorism uh, or political violence is a social thing. Uh, terrorism is usually committed by men, and, uh, and the idea of a bunch of guys theory is that it's not that people have a certain kind of religious belief which click, clicks in and gets them to do something violent. It's actually more the case that they join a social group, and that social group uh, becomes their close set of friends, and that social group enables them to feel more and more confidence if that social group is one that wants to commit violence or is, is a kind of arm of some kind of group that, that would commit violence, that group will draw people in and induct them into this kind of framework and perspective of violence. Uh, so it's the informal socializing. It's bar barbecues together. It's doing, you know, playing laser tag, doing all sorts of things together, playing, uh, uh, playing sport together that eventually leads this bunch of guys to have the confidence to want to do something drastic. And this is backed up in some ways by, by, the, by a good example of uh, two friends who joined ISIS, uh, who obviously didn't have very much theological knowledge before they, they moved to Syria, uh, because um, on their journey to the airport, they bought uh, the Quran for Dummies and Islam for Dummies. Uh, so clearly, it was because of their friendships with others that they became interested in joining ISIS. This one, I think, has a lot going for it if you look at stories of, of how, how and why people join radical groups and, and take part in these acts. But at the same time, all of these theories of radicalization leave something out, and all of them have a major flaw. And that is that radicalization discourse downplays the primacy of politics. It's always the case that these theories try to explain something but try to avoid talking about the contested political issues. And so it was very much true that in the beginnings of PREVENT, 
the government was very keen to understand and study Muslims, but not very keen to hear their views about the Iraq War or Afghanistan or Palestine and Israel and those sorts of topics. It was always the case that those things were put off to the side, um, and, and the lack of discussion of those issues meant that uh, there was a uh, that, that any strong feelings people had politically often had to be moved underground. Uh, they often had to try to vent those in separate bunches of guys and, and different sorts of groups. So all of these theories uh, tend to parcel out and, and hide away the primacy of politics. And if we talked about politics more, we might have much less need for theories of radicalization and much less need uh, for trying to explain away many of these acts. All this being said, uh, it's not the case that there's no impact of religion or no reason to understand religion. And just briefly, if we want to understand how religion matters to political violence, I'll just say a few things. Um, Religion is, I think, generally not the problem in political violence, but religion can make violent expression more problematic. And here I would follow Mark Jurgensmeyer, who says that uh, religion can make this violence more problematic because it personalizes conflict. It can make it something which is a personal struggle or something about your own salvation or your own honor before God. Uh, Religion can cast issues into a cosmic war, can give things ultimate significance, can give you a sense of strength, a spiritual strength, which is much greater than the strength of your foes. And it also provides vehicles for mobilization. So it is true that that networks of religious people can be pre-made networks that uh, enable uh, political violence to take place. At the same time, religion has a, a real problem, gives us a real problem too, because the more that we look through a lens of religion in understanding this, the more that we're involved in stigmatizing those who are religious. And so you will be quite familiar with the problem of Islamophobia or anti-Muslim prejudice. And there are many ways that this is studied and considered. Uh, one of the, uh, the simplest and most popular on, uh, in, in, on a wide scale is called the RIS test. Um, and the RIS test is written by two academics, Chaudhry and Habib. Uh, but it, it refers to Riz Ahmed, uh, the well-known actor from Star Wars fame and from other, uh, other major films, uh, who you can see pictured in the upper right here. And the idea is that, uh, that our films and television are so filled with images of Muslims that are negative in a particularly violent way that we almost don't notice it. Uh, so if you watch a film or a TV program that has any of these qualities, it will fail the RIS test. Um, Is the Muslim portrayed on screen a terrorist victim or perpetrator? Is that Muslim irrationally angry? Are they superstitious, backwards, or anti-modern? Are they a threat to a Western way of life? If male, are they misogynistic? If female, are they oppressed by males? If you find any of those things to be the case, which is very, very often the case, uh, then it fails the RIS test and is one example of anti-Muslim prejudice, which radicalization uh, discourse is, is part of a big system of, of uh, fueling. If we continue to challenge perceptions and, and try to think about this, 
Uh, a very good book in that regard is The Missing Martyrs by Charles Kurtzman, uh, where the subtitle is, Why Are There So Few Muslim Terrorists? As he writes, uh, with more than a billion Muslims, many of whom supposedly hate the West and ardently desire martyrdom, why don't we see terrorist attacks every day? Now, clearly, it is not the case that, uh, that Muslims um, are feeling empowered by religion en masse to commit this violence. Clearly, there's some kind of hyperbole here. Clearly, it's the, this, the, a statement like this shows to us that there's a, a tremendous mismatch between how Muslims are portrayed on film and television and otherwise and what Muslims do in real life. There's a, a tremendous mismatch. And a book like this helps us to recognize how vast that, mis that mismatch is. One reason for uh, such, a, such a gap in our perceptions and reality is that this feeds very well into uh, journalism and into uh, the ways in which media generally shape our views of other people. And so in journalism, there's an aphorism that if it bleeds, it leads. The idea being that a story that is violent, a story that involves death, uh, will make it to the front page, uh, will be more popular, and it is true that it will see many more clicks, many more views. Um, it's also the case that uh, those who are engaged in terrorist organizations want to be heard, want to be popular. And so Olivier Roy has described the mirror effect uh, that, uh, that terrorist organizations want to see happen. And this is, we are what you say we are, that is your worst enemy, and the proof is not in what we do, but in what you do. Uh, so uh, a key example of this, of course, is that after the September 11th, 2001 attack, uh, George Bush launched the War on Terror, um, and that proved that al-Qaeda was the number one enemy of America, that America's main policy initiatives and, and work in world affairs for the next several years would be dominated by facing down this one enemy, a very, very numerically small, uh, very unpowerful enemy in most respects, but this mirror effect demonstrated that they were absolutely considered the top uh, priority. And all of what I've been saying for the past few minutes just reminds us of the need to keep everything about these topics in proportion. So we need to recognize that, uh, that terror and political violence um, are uh, very unusual events, uh, that terrorism by its very nature is unexpected and surprising, that it's very unlikely to actually um, impact any of us directly. Um, it remains the case today that it is, more, it is less likely to be a victim of a terror attack in Western Europe than it is to be struck by lightning. Uh, so it's generally something which does not impact people um, on a personal level, although of course it is important for our societies and important for us to talk through and think through and understand. But we need to keep it in proportion, and the more that we do that, uh, the less power uh, the, the truly virulent acts will have. In fact, in keeping it in proportion, if we look at uh, this, this uh, bar chart uh, here to look at uh, Europe in particular, 
uh, Western Europe. Uh, so this does not include September 11th, but this is just including Western Europe. We can see that, uh, that actually there was much more of a high point of regular terrorism in the 1970s and 1980s than more recently. So you can see that uh, the Northern Ireland Troubles were an important part of this, that uh, the ETA, Basque separatists in Spain, uh, also committed many of these acts. Uh, the still somewhat mysterious Lockerbie bombing, uh, where a Libyan national brought down uh, a plane. Uh, these were some, some periods of much more incessant uh, violence, uh, at least in comparison to the, the kinds of violence that we see um, in more recent years. And this, ha this hasn't been updated but, uh, to the past five years, but um, the, it does not get um, really higher than we're seeing in these in more recent years. And then one final aspect of our, of our perceptions that we need to keep in mind is that um, just as we can see here, uh, where political violence takes different forms, uh, where actually most of the political violence of the past 50 years has been about nationalist causes, so most of it, uh, maybe all of it, has had to do with national borders, issues around uh, who has the right to define what happens in, in particular national borders. Um, if that's the case, uh, we should also think about uh, what kinds of dangers we're facing in the future. Um, and those uh, are shifting as well. Uh, political violence changes on a regular basis. And as we look forward, uh, much more of the research and analysis, although perhaps less of the news coverage, um, is looking at uh, white Christian nationalist violence as something to, to take into account. So every single uh, act of terror is, uh, is tragic and difficult. Um, and uh, what I've pictured here are people who, are, uh, who have uh, lost loved ones uh, rather than um, individual perpetrators or anything like that. Uh, but if we think about white Christian nationalist violence or white nationalist violence, uh, a key event uh, was Anders Breivik's attack in Norway in 2011. Uh, where he killed 77 people. Uh, and um, he killed, essentially, uh, young people who were children of uh, some of the liberal politicians who were more open to immigration in Norway. So his, his hope was to make Norway more close to immigration and more close to Muslims in particular. And in fact, he wrote a 1,500-page uh, manifesto uh, with a lot of Christian symbolism, uh, and, and through this, wanted to bring across an idea of a continent that was freed from Muslims. Uh, if we look more recently at New Zealand in, in 2019, uh, in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, we saw an individual who uh, did Facebook Live shootings in uh, two mosques in New Zealand. Um, in Germany, uh, in 2020, in Hanau, Germany, uh, a man uh, drove around and looked for people at hookah bars um, outside and, and shot them. Um, and then more recently, uh, just last year in the United States, uh, there was the storming of the Capitol, a, a big riot which took place, uh, which was fueled by white uh, Christian nationalist sentiments. Uh, so all of these are some aspects of changing 
uh, hues of political violence, perhaps, or changing perceptions. Uh, but let's still remember that we're talking about political violence rather than necessarily thinking that the uh, religious elements run to the core or run to the root. And in fact, one good way to see that is if we look at the capital attack uh, or the storming of the capital, where QAnon, uh, an anonymous poster or group, um, has been at the center of driving up support for Donald Trump, uh, for support for the idea that Donald Trump actually won the previous election, um, and support for Trump among evangelical Christians and many others in American society. Uh, QAnon has built a kind of uh, conspiracy theory, <clears throat> which also verges with types of spirituality. Uh, so people sometimes consider this a kind of conspirituality, so that there's a joining of spiritual ideas with conspiracy theories. It's a conspiracy theory that um, there essentially has been a cabal within American politics, uh, which is doing secret, hidden things which are harming children in America. And uh, to root out that cabal, uh, the supporters of Q and ultimately the supporters of Trump need to get Trump back into power and need to round up the political leaders uh, um, and um, you know, exile or execute them. Um, and uh, what is quite clear about this is that it is fueled by and relates quite closely to spiritual ideas, and evangelical Christians are among the largest group of supporters of this uh, within the U.S., but ultimately it is a political idea. It's ultimately about upheaval, about those who believe in Donald Trump's policies and his type of politics. Uh, so if you really reduce it down and get to the root, uh, this is, uh, at its core, an example of politics and political violence uh, more than anything else. And that has been my, my hope from this talk, that we can do better at getting to the root, at trying to understand radicalization and uh, to, to sort of take off the facade and look behind the scenes and recognize that maybe uh, this idea of radicalization itself, uh, in my view, is something which hides from us the roots. It makes it harder for us to see that politics is at the root of uh, much of the violence that we've seen in recent decades, uh, that, uh, that really there's a primacy of politics. Uh, and in addition to this, I've tried to bring across that, that Muslims in particular need trust, security, and their civil rights defended, that, that uh, there are particular ways that radicalization discourse singles out Muslims uh, that our films and television single out Muslims and make them look like a fifth column, which is violent. Uh, but that actually hides from us the real discussions we could be having about politics instead. And I think these, these issues are very important because radicalization and similar policies and approaches have a chilling effect on our, our ability to speak to each other. Uh, they make it difficult for us to voice controversial political ideas. They make it difficult for us to get ideas out there. It could be the case that um, if we start to be more open in talking about politics, that uh, we find that um, some ideas come out there which are terrible, they have no merit to them, 
but at least they'll get out into the open and we can defend and talk them through and find that they don't have very much merit and weight. It might be the case that as we have more open political debate, that we'll hear some radical ideas that have a lot of force and merit. And maybe, arguably, radical ideas and radical religion are precisely what we need to confront climate change and the bigger problems of our day. Maybe the more that we have radical ideas in our public spaces and we can debate and think about them, uh, the more that ideas will get to the root causes and lead us to wholesale changes that do make a difference for bigger problems. But whatever those ideas might feature, however good or bad they might be, radical ideas are important for us because they are a test of our democracy. What we do with ideas that are different from us, with ideas held by minorities, with ideas that really test our limits, I think is probably the truest test of our democracy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.